This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. We're going to be looking at our passage from Romans that Jim just read for us so beautifully. If you want to follow along in a pew Bible, I encourage you to do so. You can grab it uh, from the uh, pew rack in front of you. It's on page 944. So I will always remember the very first time I encountered my friend Ben. It was the first day of eighth grade in science class. Ben was brand new to the school, but I admit that the first time I saw him, I did not think he was a new student. I thought he was a new student teacher. Uh, that's because in eighth grade, Ben stood a head taller than every other kid, and he had these huge, big, broad shoulders and this deep, booming voice. And by second period science, he already had a five o'clock shadow on his face. Uh, but I did learn over the course of those next couple days that Ben was indeed an eighth grader. Um, I also learned that despite the rather intimidating appearance, Ben was a really nice guy. And so we became fast friends. I'm sure it was quite hilarious, actually, to see the two of us walking together through the middle school hallways. You see, because back then, I was really scrawny, and I had this high-pitched voice. I wasn't the man that you see before you now. <laughs> As many of you know, the middle school years can be rather difficult, especially for the little guys, the scrawny ones, the ones who are the weakest in the school. But in eighth grade, through my friendship with Ben, I discovered a new freedom. It was the freedom of assurance that now Nobody was going to mess with me. Not in the cafeteria, not at the bike racks after school. My friendship with Ben gave me that assurance for two reasons. First of all, he was easily the biggest and strongest kid in the school, so nobody was going to mess with Ben. And then, of equal importance, and fortunately, Ben liked me. I was his friend, and nobody was going to mess with one of Ben's friends. So today we come to the epic conclusion of Paul's four-chapter exposition on our justification by faith in Jesus Christ. It's what we've been studying together all summer out of the book of Romans. In these four chapters, they're Paul's extended argument for the freedom of assurance that we all have as Christians. And through the Father's gift of his only Son, through the finished work of Jesus' death and resurrection, we who call upon the name of Jesus and turn to him, we have been reconciled to God. We are his friends. And not unlike the rather silly example of my middle school friendship with Ben and of infinitely more significance, our assurance in our relationship with the Lord comes from two things. First, the Lord's power. Second, the Lord's love. The Lord is the biggest and the strongest, so nobody can mess with him. And he loves us. We, indeed, are his friends. So nobody can mess with us. If God is for us, Paul begins, who can be against us? The all-powerful God, the creator, sustainer, 
and judge of the universe is for us. He loves us. He gave up everything to reconcile us to him, to reconcile our relationship. And because of the Lord's power and his love, we too have a newfound freedom. So this morning as we travel through this passage, I want to ask you to look for all the signs of God's power and his love. Because these two characteristics of the Lord, they're woven throughout the text. We need a God who loves us. We need a God who would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. We need a God who comforts us in our grief, who truly cares for us. How frightening it would be to live under the illusion of a God who was powerful, but who didn't love us. And yet, we also need a powerful God, don't we? A God who not only sent Jesus to die, but who was also able to raise him from the dead. We need a God who can fight for us, who can fight for us now. How hopeless it would be to live under the illusion of a God who loved us, but who had no power to help us. But the Lord is powerful, and the Lord does love us, and that brings us a freedom of assurance. It gives us a reason to rejoice. So Father Matt asked our preachers this summer to revel in our justification by faith in Christ. And I think that's exactly what Paul's doing here in his conclusion. This is such a breathtaking, beautiful, and soaring passage. I honestly come to it to preach on it with fear and with trembling. At the same time, I do think that Paul's outline is actually relatively straightforward. He's making two amazing, yet very simple points. Because we have been justified, because God is with us, we now have freedom from condemnation. You see that in verses 31 to 34. We also have freedom from separation, verses 35 to 39. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from separation. So first, let's look at verses 31 to 34 and explore this freedom from condemnation. So commentators talk about how this section is set up as if we're in a court hearing. Accusations have been made against us. Because we have sinned, because we have rebelled against the Lord, we deserve punishment. We deserve to be condemned. Enter Paul, who's like our defense attorney. He's been making the case for our justification. Over the last four chapters, he's laid out the full argument. And here, he's making his closing arguments, right here, starting in verse 31. And the way Paul chooses to give his closing argument is by firing off a series of questions, one after the other. And notice that Paul doesn't give a direct answer to almost any question he asks here. Instead, he just keeps moving forward with his argument. Each question is actually more of a rhetorical device where the answer should already be obvious to the listener. It's sort of like, is the Pope Catholic? Or, 
Are Father Matt's stories about the Finnafrox real? <laughs> you don't have to give an answer to that question. Everyone already knows the answer to those questions. Right, Father Matt? They are true. <laughs> Everyone already knew that. If God is for us, who can be against us? I ask you, who? And Paul fires off these questions, one after the other. Boom, boom, boom. Each one is mounting up the case for our freedom from condemnation. Okay, so first let's just read through this in quick succession. That's the way Paul intended to present his argument. And then we're going to come back and we're going to bop around a little and quickly notice a few aspects of Paul's argument. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay, so let's just notice a few things. First, notice verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, it is the Lord himself who sits as judge. Yes, there may be those who seek to attack you, to accuse you, but the authority to condemn and the power to set free rests only in the hands of the Lord. This case is in his jurisdiction, and nobody else holds the power of condemnation. Second thing, notice the reminder that the Lord, who holds jurisdiction, he has already acted on our behalf. Look back at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So a few things in this passage, in this verse. Uh, first of all, that phrase, for us all, that can be translated in a different way. Um, it, it means not just the whole, it also means each individual part, the Greek phrase. So you could literally say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for each and every one of us. The Lord, who alone has the power to condemn, out of his deep love, he chose a different way for each and every one of us. He spared nothing, not even his own son, to free us from condemnation, from the condemnation our sins deserved. You all know John 3.16. Do you remember the verse that comes right after it? John 3, 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Lord has acted on our behalf in the gift of his son. So how, Paul asks, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, how could he possibly fail now to
to finish the work of salvation. That was the purpose of the gift of his son. And so the gift of Jesus has set us free from the condemnation we deserved, both now and forever. The final thing I want you to notice in this section is Paul's quick four-part summary of our justification through Jesus, which he lays out in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is so jam-packed, both with the power of God on full display for us and the love of God through the work of Jesus. In love, Jesus died for you. In power, God raised him from the dead. And then Jesus ascended into heaven in great power and great glory. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father where in such a beautiful picture of his continued love for you, he intercedes for you for every challenge you face in your life. By the powerful love of Jesus, you have been given freedom from condemnation. You've been given it in this life and for the life to come. So my question is, are you experiencing that freedom in your life? Charles Wesley wrote, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Is that your experience? Because we can still hear the voice of the accuser. Satan is known by the name of Diabolos, which is translated the slanderer. He seeks to make us feel condemned based on our sins, based on our shortcomings, based on our mistakes. He would love for us to believe that others can indeed speak a word of condemnation over us. But that's a power that only belongs to the Lord. Yet the enemy wants us to hear those words of condemnation in the words of others, in the words of a boss, a family member, a friend, somebody at your school or your work, or even the words that you're speaking to yourself. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone in this room can think of a time where you felt condemnation from another person. We should stop and clarify, right, that there's a difference between correction and condemnation. We all need people in our lives who will speak words of correction, who will call out our sin when they see it. That's the work that happens in the body of Christ. That's the work of our ongoing sanctification. But condemnation feels very different. Whatever might have actually been said to you, the subtext feels more like, you're worthless. You're a horrible person. You should feel ashamed. You cannot be forgiven for that. So be reminded this morning that because of the powerful love of Jesus, all your sins can be forgiven. And now nobody has the power to condemn you. 
students in the room, I've been thinking a lot about you this week and about this point in particular. And I just want to say, if, if someone has ever spoken a word over you that felt like condemnation, I don't know what that word might have been. It could have been all kinds of things. Maybe it felt like you're stupid, you're worthless. Let me just say, it's not true. That is not how the Lord sees you. If those words had a power over you, then now, in this place, in this moment, be released from that power in the name of Jesus, who loved you so much that he was willing to die for you. And if anyone in this room feels ashamed because of a sin in their life, I want to encourage you this morning, go and find a prayer minister and confess that sin to a brother or a sister and experience the Lord's gift of forgiveness, the Lord's gift of freedom from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's point kind of shifts in verse 35. It shifts from a freedom from condemnation that we now have to a freedom from separation. And man, these verses, they're so beautiful. They're almost, they're almost like a song. If Romans 5 through 8 was an opera, this would be like the final aria that just raises the audience to their feet. And if you're worried that I'm about to start singing these verses, don't worry. I did not have time to set them to music. <laughs> Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Jesus loves you. His purpose was not simply to justify you, to free you from condemnation, and to set you off on your way. But in love, his desire was to draw you into union with himself. And here in this past, part of the passage, Paul asks one final question. It's there in verse 35. And note, it's the only question he's asked that he's actually going to give a direct answer to. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? And if you skip down to verse 37, he emphatically declares his answer. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then we see Paul go on to double down on his answer as he shifts from asking questions to a final declarative statement in verse 38. And he says, For I am sure that. And then he lists 
a whole bunch of crazy stuff that we'll get back to in a second, saying that none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So perhaps you'll notice that in the second half of the passage, there's two lists. We've got the first list there in verse 35, and then we've got a second list um, in verses 38 and 39. And commentators have a lot of theories on the meanings and the organization of these two lists, but perhaps the simplest way to look at it would be that the first list is a list of earthly circumstances, earthly forces and experience that we might worry have the power to separate us from the Lord. And then the second list, it's like a cosmic list. It's a list of cosmic forces that might feel like they indeed have the power to separate us from the love of God. And so on one level, these lists are rather sobering, if not um, actually frightening, because they remind us, first of all, that we face an earthly battle. Even though as Christians the Lord has freed us from condemnation and bonded us to him in love, we will still face hardships, we will still face trials of many kind in this life. We will face tribulation and distress. You will experience some form of persecution as a Christian. And there are Christians around the world who definitely experience famine and even the sword. And then we're reminded that there's also a cosmic battle that's being waged. There is an enemy and he desires to see us separated from God's love. And he is indeed waging a war in the heights and the depths. It is being fought by angel hosts, by rulers, by powers. And I think it's fair to say that many of the trials and tribulations that you will experience here on earth are most certainly and ultimately linked to that cosmic battle. And the enemy would like nothing more than for you to be convinced that you are all alone. That whether it be earthly circumstances or cosmic forces that are pressing in on you, ultimately, you are left to face them by yourself. And it's probably true that we all reach moments at the height of struggle or suffering where we start to believe that that might actually be true. We're left alone. But the glory and majesty of the song that Paul is singing here is that none of these powers are stronger than the powerful love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even cosmic forces can separate you from his love. So let me give you just two images that we've read this summer from the book of Romans that I think display just how impossible it is for you to be separated from the love of God. The first one comes back to the very beginning of our series, back in chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 5, uh, verse 5, when Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love is living within you. You cannot possibly be separated from that love. The second image I want to offer you comes from our passage this morning. It's back in verse 34. 
Christ Jesus, Paul says, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Isn't that an amazing thought? Right now, Jesus is in heaven, sitting next to the Father and interceding on your behalf. The Father gave the Son for you, and now the Son is in heaven giving his prayers for you back to the Father. You will face trial and tribulation, but here's a reminder that you can always give yourself on just how inseparable God's love is from you. You can tell yourself, Jesus has poured his love into my heart, and right now he is in heaven interceding on my behalf. So finally, there's a transformation that comes through this assurance that we can never be separated from the love of Christ. If you look back at uh, verse 36, there's this seemingly odd quotation that Paul gives. It's from Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul places this right after he talks about the earthly trials that we are bound to face. And I think the reason that he included this quote from Psalm 44 is that phrase right at the beginning, for your sake. Because the transformation that takes place in the Christian is not an escape from suffering, but it's a newfound strength and purpose in and through our suffering. No longer are you alone in your suffering. No longer is it a sign or a a confirmation of your condemnation. It's not a sign of your defeat. No, now you suffer just as Christ suffered. Now you suffer with Jesus and for Jesus. Do you remember what Paul said earlier in chapter 8? We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering becomes the primary means of your sanctification as you become more like Jesus, and are drawn into deeper relationship with him. God saves his people indeed, but not from their suffering, but through it, so that you can say with Paul, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Would you pray with me? O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins. Banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will. And steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.